If there's one thing we've talked a lot about over the years, it has been the ways in which the economy is set up to advantage people with more money. In no place is that more obvious than in the tax code. Basically, when black and white Americans engage in the same activity, whether it's getting married, whether it's buying a home or trying to build wealth, our tax system advantages how white Americans engage in the activity and at the same time disadvantage how black Americans engage in that activity. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So Goldie, if there's one thing we've talked a lot about on the podcast over the years, it has been the ways in which the economy is set up to advantage people with more money. Uh, and the way in which it, you know, we preference capital over work and so on and so forth. And in no place is that more obvious than in the tax code, right? And we've talked about it a lot, how if you're rich and have a ton of income, your rates are literally lower than if you were middle class and, you know, have a job. You mean like, like me? Yes. Like you specifically like you, what, you know, I think you and I have not understood as clearly as the ways in which that system disproportionately disadvantages black families. And so today it'll be super interesting to talk to, uh, Dorothy Brown, a tax professor at Emory law who researches systemic racism in tax policy. I'm Dorothy Brown. I'm a tax law professor at Emory University, and I'm the author of The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. First of all, I want to tell you how much I enjoyed the book. It was eye-opening. You know, we certainly understood that our tax system is uh, uh, preferences uh, wealthy people, and therefore it would uh, disadvantage black families since they uh, are less wealthy. But I had no idea uh, beyond that how much just the whole structure of the system disadvantaged uh, black families. If, if you could start off by uh, just giving us an overview. Sure. So my research uncovered, and let me be clear, I went into tax law thinking it had nothing to do with race. So Goldie, you are not alone. <laughs> and what I discovered, I kind of fell into it because of my uh, doing my parents' taxes is basically when black and white Americans engage in the same activity, whether it's getting married, whether it's buying a home, paying for college for their kids, getting a job or trying to build wealth, our tax system advantages how white Americans engage in the activity and at the same time disadvantage how black Americans engage in that activity. Uh, give us a, an example of that. Let's start with yeah. um, I, one of the biggies in your book, the uh, joint return. Right. So, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is when you get married, you get a tax cut. And that's only true if you are in a household with primarily one uh, wage earner 
and the other spouse stays at home or contributes very little to household income, that household actually gets a tax cut when they get married. But the household that doesn't get a tax cut are those where both spouses work full time and contribute roughly amounts, equal amounts to household income. That household can pay higher taxes when they get married. And when I looked at Census Bureau data, because let me just drop a footnote, the IRS does not publish statistics by race. So the only way I was able to find this out and the only way I was able to write the book was I had to become a detective digging through any kind of data that I could use for my income tax analysis. So the Census Bureau is a great data set because it's large. And what I discovered is white married couples were more likely to be in single wage earner households and eligible for the tax cut when they get married. But black married couples, regardless of income, were more likely to be in what I call marriage penalty households, 50-50, and therefore paying higher taxes. So when you think of marriage, white and black Americans do marriage differently. White Americans are more likely to be able to have one single wage earner, the second spouse works at home. Black married couples can't afford to do that. In order to produce a, a standard of living that's above the poverty line, basically you need two workers. This is just the just the, it's such an interesting example. And of course, the differences between these two modalities extends far beyond just how much tax you pay. But can you put some numbers to it? I mean, in the book, you use the example of a of two married households, one where one person earned a hundred thousand and yes. the other spouse earned zero, and the second household where both earned fifty thousand to make a hundred. Right. So, what are the actual dollars and cents implications of that? Those two different circumstances. Right. So, first, I'll say that the tax law treats those two households equally and believes right. the right answer is for those two households to pay the same amount of taxes. But the reality is a $50,000 job is very different than a $100,000 job. It's different in terms of the benefits that one might get. It's different in terms of the ability to work at home, something we saw through the pandemic. It's different in terms of the dual wage earner household has to figure out a way to pay for childcare. Right. They may need two cars to drive to work, whereas right. the $100,000 household, they don't necessarily need two cars. So those, those households economically are very, very different. I'll walk you through it. So let's say the $100,000 wage earner doesn't get married. Yeah. And he pays taxes at X dollars, right? When he gets married, he and his spouse pay taxes at X minus dollars. They get a tax cut. Right. Whereas the black married couple, they're paying taxes at, let's say, half X. And when they get married, they pay taxes because of the marriage penalty at X at plus. Yeah. At X right. plus, right? They wind up paying higher taxes than had they remained single. In dollars and cents. Yeah. What the tax law does is say the $100,000 household should pay taxes at the same level as the two $50,000 households. Okay. That results in a tax cut 
yeah. from what the 100,000 single wage earner would earn, right? That's in a perfect system. We didn't have a perfect system pre-2017. And what actually happened is the two $50,000 wage earners paid higher taxes than the $100,000 single wage earner couple. Amazing. Yes. Right. They pay the same. It's just that the, the single earner got a tax cut and the double earners got a tax increase from marriage. Right. Right. And then on, on top of that, Dorothy, I think it's an important point that you make which is the costs are very different right? Uh, because uh, they're both working. That's right. right. That's right. And our progressive income tax system is built on this notion of ability to pay. Why would you treat a single wage earner household with a stay-at-home spouse as having the exact same ability to pay as two $50,000 workers? It makes no sense. Okay. So I guess the, the question is, how did we get here? If we go through the congressional yes. record, it's it's not like uh, uh, Congress went and said, "Hey, let's <laughs> let's let's write the tax law in such a way as to disadvantage black families." You won't find that intent anywhere. Uh, that that legislative intent uh, was this intention. But you yeah. will find legislative intent to write it to benefit rich white taxpayers like That's for Henry sure. and Charlotte Seaborn, right? Yeah. So we have the joint return oh, because yeah. of this couple out of Seattle, Henry and Charlotte Seaborn, who were one of the few Americans in the late 1920s paying taxes and they didn't like it. So they engaged in self-help, I would argue, filing a fraudulent in return that created a deduction that didn't exist. And the IRS said, you can't do that. It went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, oh yeah, you can do that. So we have tax policy that is intentionally designed to benefit rich white Americans. So you're right, there's no legislative history that says we wanna harm black Americans, but we know when the joint return came into existence in 1948, there was a higher percentage of black married couples with wives working outside the home. So was it benign neglect? Was it just intentional um, benefits in favor of white taxpayers? I think it's the latter, which of course necessitates a discriminatory impact on the part of Black taxpayers. So what are some other interesting examples of the ways in which the tax code is unfair in this way? So let's take homeownership. Lots of uh, progressive Americans or policymakers think the reason why Black Americans don't have more wealth is we need more Black homeowners. And what the research shows is mm, Black homeownership has different wealth implications than white homeownership. And that is a function of where homeowners live and the fact that we have segregated housing. But when you talk about the tax breaks, if you sell your home for a half a million dollar, well, you sell your home at a gain up to half a million dollars if you're married, you can receive tax-free. If you sell your home at a loss, there's no tax break. You would look at that and say, wow, isn't that a great benefit? Everybody can build wealth up to half a million dollars tax-free. But the problem is you have white homeowners more likely to have that half a million dollar gain and more black homeowners more likely to have a non-tax deductible loss. 
So our tax laws benefit how white Americans own homes and disadvantage how black Americans own homes. And this difference in appreciation uh, in houses between uh, white homeowners and black homeowners, as you point out in the book, that's no longer, that's not due to legal redlining uh, like we used to have. It's the preferences of white homeowners. Correct. Correct, because white homeowners are the majority of home of the home buying population, and white homeowners' preferences are to live in almost all white neighborhoods. So, for example, there's sociology research that did video experiments, and they had uh, they had the same neighborhood with the same amenities, but the only difference was the race of the actors walking through the neighborhood. In video number one all white actors in video number two, all black actors. And in video number three, 60% white, 40% black actors. And they had people look at these neighborhoods, look at these videos and say, where do you wanna live? The white viewers wanted to live in the all white neighborhood and the black viewers wanted to live in either the racially diverse or all black neighborhoods. So you can't say it's because white homeowners want safer neighborhoods with less crime and better schools, because when you show a video that has all of that equalized, they still pick the neighborhood that's all white. And and this creates a catch-22 for for Black homeowners, doesn't it? Because, you know, if they want this, the kind of appreciation that the white homeowners get, they need to move into the white neighborhood. But if too many black families move into the white neighborhood, the white families move out and they don't get the appreciation. That's absolutely true. That's part of the problem. You know, you move into the neighborhood and then you have to literally root against other black people living and moving into the neighborhood. The other problem is if you are one of the only black families in the neighborhood, you're going to be, you you have the potential to be subjected to lots of problems. Mm-hmm. Your neighbors don't know a black person lives in the neighborhood. So when you're trying to get in your own home, they'll call the cops. If you have children, your children may be targeted for discipline, for engaging in the exact same behavior their white peers do. But the teacher sees a discipline problem when it's a black child acting up and they don't see it. They see uh, a child who is intellectually curious when it's a white child acting up. So there are all kinds of problems associated, or I would say drawbacks associated with a black American moving into an all white neighborhood and having their home be a good financial investment. Yeah, and just uh, uh, parenthetically, and this doesn't speak to the federal tax code, but certainly to local property tax codes, what's now pretty well understood is how disadvantaged poorer neighborhoods and therefore black neighborhoods are in terms of property tax rates versus the wealthiest neighborhoods, right? That's absolutely true. Yeah, that, that, you know, we now can see there's a lot of new data coming out that shows that, not surprisingly, that where the houses are most expensive, the rates are effectively lowest. And where the houses are uh, the least expensive, the rates are effectively highest. There's research that shows when you compare property tax rates of black homeowners versus white homeowners, that white homeowners have lower tax rates. And it's a function of of what Nick said, it's white homeowners are more likely to appeal. But there's also this idea that 
black homes are valued, the assessment of black homes is not based on the market reality that white homeowners value them less, right? So you, you'll put a, an appraiser or an assessor will put a value on a black home that's wildly out of proportion to what they would actually get if they sold a house. And of right. course, we've seen newspaper stories recently on what happens when you actually appraise black homes, that when the appraiser comes in and thinks it's owned by a black person, the appraiser comes in at less than $100,000 lower. And then when a different appraiser comes in and a white person is sitting there, the appraisal comes back much higher. If you had a blank slate to rewrite the tax code with no political considerations, what would you do? The benevolent dictator question. So, so you do it the way you want it. <laughs> I would tax first all income the same. Income from stock would be taxed at the same rate structure as income from wages. There'd be no preferential rate. And I would have um, very few, if any, exclusions. There'd be one deduction for what I call a living allowance, which meant if you didn't earn enough from your job to get out of poverty, not I actually get out of poverty, to, to have a sustainable lifestyle, a living yeah. allowance, then if you didn't earn enough, the federal government would write you a check for the difference. And if you earned more than that, you would pay taxes at the progressive tax rate. So there'd be pretty much no loopholes. Okay. No loopholes, no deductions, no home mortgage interest deduction. No, you'd have this living <laughs> allowance deduction and that's right. it. No capital gains exclusion. No. Well, what about the step-up basis on capital gains? Oh, that's that's gone. <laughs> oh God, I I love it. This is the. Uh, what about the carried the, interest loophole? That's gone. <laughs> oh, sorry. Now Dave. you're just now you're just tossing me softballs. <laughs> you know, Republicans talk about simplifying the tax code. I'm happy yes. to do it. Eliminate all deductions. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And they don't want simplification that way. They want extreme complexity when it helps themselves and their donors. They're not really interested in tax simplification. And I think you mentioned in the book that the 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 number of people who itemize, uh, which yes. was already very low, is much lower after the 2017 reforms. That's absolutely it, right. So it used reforms to be is, a, yeah, I know. It's not an I, I almost choked on the word, okay. but okay. Air that, that was, <laughs> it used to be about a third of Americans itemized. Now it's closer to 12 or 13%. So I think we actually can get some things done. We can, I think, because the itemized deductions impact fewer and fewer Americans who are richer and richer, that we're, we may be in a moment where we see some movement here. Like the mortgage interest deduction could actually go. Yeah. Or or at least you could divide it by every American. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I mean, fine, incentivize it, but just take that, whatever it is, 60 or 80 billion bucks a year and divide it equally among the people who buy the houses. Not Don't well, give this massive well, advantage. Why not the, the renters? The list. That, uh, fine. Well, that's the problem, right? That's that's the problem because homeownership has always been raced in America. So the minute yeah. you give subsidies to homeownership, you're going to disproportionately benefit white Americans who are the majority of homeowners. And we say we don't allow a deduction for rent because that's a personal expense, but so is a home. So yeah. we make all kinds of exceptions that just so happen to disproportionately benefit white Americans while disadvantaging black Americans. Unfortunately, Dorothy, you're not our benevolent dictator, so you can't rewrite the tax code. Uh, given 
the the current system we have right now and not just the tax code but just the the larger economic and social environment what are your recommendations to black families yeah so i i recommend black americans recognize that they have to take a defensive posture. So if you're going to buy a home, well, one, if you're going to get married, delay it until, if you're going to get married on New Year's Eve, don't do it, wait till January 1, right? Because that puts off the issue for at least one more year. If you're going to buy a home, then don't be house poor if you're living in a racially diverse or all black neighborhood. You can be house poor if you're living in a white neighborhood, but not in a racially diverse or black neighborhood. Do not take home equity loans if you're living in a racially diverse or black neighborhood. And whatever money you save by not being house poor, put it into your retirement account and max out or start a 529 child savings account for your child or a niece or nephew. If you work and have access to an employer provided retirement account, to the extent you're financially able, max out. Think about, you know, right now we do have these tax subsidies that are disproportionately benefiting white Americans. Let's make sure that to the extent we can, they start to benefit black Americans as well. And you point out in the book that, you know, you recommend stocks, that there are no um, white white stocks and black stocks, unlike uh, uh, white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods. Right. So I do think Uh, investing in the stock market is a way to go. The problem is the financial services industry does not see Black Americans as a potential target market. So if you have money to invest, how do you know where to invest it? And how do you know someone's not trying to take advantage of you? Because we also have a history of the financial services industry of targeting high-income Black and and Latino Americans for subprime mortgages, right? So what you need is the financial services industry to take a good hard look at themselves and do better. And what is your recommendation? Yeah. (laughs) What is your recommendation to to white people? (laughs) If we want to make, if we want to address this, what do we have to do? Well, first I talk about acknowledging the family financial transfers you've gotten along the way. You know, uh, grandparents paid for college or parents paid for K through 12. How are you in the position you got yourself in? A lot of white Americans like to think they did it because of hard work. And there was some hard work, but there was also some luck. You were born white to parents who had some wealth and they were able to provide for you to go to college without having significant student loan debt, to buy a home because you didn't have to worry about paying for a down payment or grandma died and you inherited the home. So talk about those stories of luck. And if you happen to be a white homeowner in a racially diverse neighborhood, don't center yourself, but come into the neighborhood like you are new and sit there and listen to what the existing or the long-term homeowners are thinking about changing and not coming in and making the neighborhood mold to your will. And we need to, I guess, advocate for things that don't necessarily advantage us financially. Absolutely. Think, I mean, for example, is it fair that Black Americans have been paying higher taxes than their white peers? No. Well, what's the solution for white people to pay higher taxes, to pay their fair share? You know, that's what the conversation in Washington, D.C. has been about, who's going to pay higher taxes. And yeah, 
white Americans who have been skating off the backs of black taxpayers need to step up and, and advocate for tax reform that benefits black Americans. I was really struck by the marriage deduction example and how different it really is to have two taxpayers paying with, yes. uh, you know, both contributing 50 to make 100 right. versus one at 100, because those circumstances are profoundly different. Yes. And like treating those two circumstances the same, I really do think it just doesn't make very much sense. And while there are millions of black families who would agree with that, uh, the, the good news is that there are many, many, many millions more white families who would also agree with that. Right. <laughs> Which well, is where political consensus comes from and, <laughs> and well, actually, action, right? I actually think the reason why the 2017 Tax Act solved the marriage penalty for so many families was because my research showed white married couples were becoming more and more subject to the marriage penalty that black married couples had always yeah. been paying. So right. over time, white married couples started looking like black married Absolutely. couples. Absolutely. Yeah. And not like the seaborn. So suddenly, out of nowhere, we get this marriage penalty fix in the 2017 Tax Act. I'll drop a footnote here, yeah. but it had nothing, it did nothing to fix the marriage penalties in the earned income tax credit. So there were certain families that the Trump folks cared about fixing, but how it fixed it was to increase the marriage bonus. So we have white couples getting an even greater marriage bonus to ensure black Americans taxes don't go up when they get married. Interesting. Black married couples still don't get a tax cut, but I digress. <laughs> yeah. So I think we're at the end of our time, but we always have a final question. And you, I happen to know you have a really great answer to this question, which is why do you do this work? I do it because I think I'm right. And I want to push <laughs> for reform. I do it because I can't not do it. I think it's important that our race and tax statistics be published. I think Treasury's refusal to do it and I, the IRS's refusal to do it will not stand given the president's racial equity order. So I think I'm actually close to winning this one. I love it. So Goldie, I know we discussed it a lot in the interview, but I was just really fascinated and taken by the difference, you know, in circumstances between two joint filers, you know, married couples never occurred to me until I read it in her book, what a big difference there is between a married couple where one person earns a hundred thousand and the other person earns zero and two people, both of whom earn, you know, 50,000 and how the tax code treats those is identical. But of course the circumstances are so different. Forget, right. forget the amount of tax that you pay, just the implication of uh, the childcare costs <laughs> that a married couple, both of whom work, have to deal right. with, right? You know, the transportation challenges, like picket, like there isn't a thing that isn't different between those two circumstances. And it's even more nuanced than that, because as Dorothy points out, um, the, the type of job that pays you 50000 versus the type that pays you 100000 is very different and tends to come with much fewer benefits. There's there's obvious things like uh, 401k. If, you're, if your employer is doing a 3% match, well, 
uh, that's a much larger amount of money on a hundred thousand dollar income than on a fifty thousand dollar income. But right. also, you're much less likely to have that match. You're much right. less yeah. likely to have uh, employer provided health insurance. No, it's it's super interesting. Obviously, there are a ton of things to change within our tax code. She talks about this in the book: how we should be looking at wealth, not income, in terms of the tax code uh, a lot more. In 2016, the median wealth of white households was $171,000, which is not a ton. It's not It's not a lot of money. You, you need more than that if you're going to retire in Seattle. But the median wealth of black households was one-tenth of that. It was only 17100 And uh, she also points out in the book that white families are equally likely to have zero wealth or be millionaires, whereas black families are 20 times more likely to have zero or negative wealth than to be millionaires. So it's it's a huge difference in terms of the the lived experience in America. And that's why it's worth leaning into these to these issues. In the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we get to talk to two pals of mine, Dr. Eric Beinhocker and Dr. Doan Farmer, both at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at Oxford University, about the economics of climate change. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.